If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther. Be finishing up Esther. So we're going to be in chapter 9, verse 1, all the way to chapter 10, verse 3. If you are visiting us and you do not own a Bible, it is found on page 438, the Bible in the chairs. If you don't own a Bible or a good Bible, please take that as a gift from us. Esther, chapter 9. In honor of God's holy word, please stand for the reading. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. On the day when the, Jew, the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame sp spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashatha, Erisai, Eridai, and Vezatha. They killed these ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed over 500 men, including Haman's ten sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law, and may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done. So a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and killed three hundred men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them but did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day, the month of Adar, and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing, and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the pur, that is, the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word pur, because of all the instructions in this letter as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them. The Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year, according to the written instructions 
and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life, and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote this second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurances of peace and security to all the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in order to confirm these days of Purim at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation. So Esther's command confirmed these customs of Purim, which were written into the record. King Ahasuerus opposed the ta imposed the tax throughout the land, even to the farthest shores. All of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments, and the details and a detailed account of Mordecai's great rank, with which the king had honored, have they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all his descendants. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Celebrate good times. Come on. There's a party going on right here. A celebration to last throughout the years. So bring your good times and your laughter too. We're going to celebrate your party with you. <laughs> I just might. <laughs> As you're familiar with this, these are the opening words to the song Celebration by Cool and the Gang. And if you have been to a party, a skating rink, celebration or a black cookout, I'm confident that you have heard this song and saw people dancing. One of the things the song is getting at is the reality that humanity, humans are a celebratory people. When good times come, we like to celebrate. We celebrate anniversaries, monuments, milestones, many things. And the reason why we celebrate it is because these things does something in our hearts to where we begin to swell with gladness, and the expression of that gladness is celebration. We like to celebrate good times. And the reality is, celebration, it is the sweetest when it's coming out of a dooming and dire and difficult situation. When you get to the other side of the difficulty, you celebrate all the more. As you yourselves would know from experience, if you've experienced any sort of deliverance, the proper response is to celebrate, to commemorate it, to turn all the way up. Well, in this morning's passage, the Jews were delivered from annihilation by God, and as we read, they responded with rejoicing and feasting. If they are celebrating like this, then, beloved, for we who are in Christ, how much more should we celebrate? For we have been delivered from sin's penalty, from judgment. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's been a great reversal to where we have a living hope. And our response is to be to rejoice. So our big idea for this passage is this. As God faithfully delivers his people, we should rejoice in him and his work. As God faithfully delivers his people, we should rejoice in him and his work. I have two points in there, words of exhortation. First, 
We conquer opposition by faith. Second, commemorate our deliverance with joy. Conquer our opposition by faith. Commemorate our deliverance with joy. So for a little bit of context, last time we saw, last time in Esther we saw the the providence of God being fully displayed. As the Jews had two problems, Haman and his edict. When God's providence, Haman was exposed, and his end was that he was hung. And the edict was also addressed as Mordecai was placed in second in command. He wrote a counter edict that was symmetrical to Amon's edict that allowed the Jews to defend themselves. And we also saw that they responded with rejoicing in this reversal that took place. So our first point, conquer opposition by faith. So that both edicts are in effect. One opposed the Jews and the other, other favored them. Look at the first two verses. It said, the king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. And on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. So these enemies, they hoped to overpower the Jews. They probably had more numbers, better tactical weapons, maybe even a better plan of fighting against them. But it said that just the opposite happened. What happened? What was their problem? Their problem wasn't what they had. The problem was who they didn't have on their side. Their problem was that the Jews had God, the sovereign one who is powerful, who is over all of creation in all human history, the all-powerful one whose power is unmatched to where the heaviest of artillery weapons are considered like water guns in comparison to God's greatness. It says that the Jews overpowered their enemies. And it was because they had God on their side. The reality is, beloved, God is the difference maker. God is the game changer. To have him on your side changes everything. You know, if you're familiar with sports, you would hear these analysts before the game talk about who would be, who would be the impact players. Who will, whose impact, if they give the production, they are able to change the possible outcome of the game. Which players are needed to make this contribution to where they are the difference makers. And then after the game, they begin to debrief about it, and they begin to talk about who were the difference makers, who made the impact plays. Beloved, God is the ultimate difference maker. God is the ultimate game changer. Seeing that his power is so amazing that he can change a situation in an instant. And not only can he change a situation, he can change the disposition of his people's hearts. To where we go from being anxious to where there's a great calm and peace. And beloved, know that the God who is able to do that is your Father in Christ Jesus. He is always, always, always on your side. You see, these Jewish enemies, the enemies of the Jews, they had no chance because they opposed God's people, which aroused God's wrath. He is the Lord of armies, the one who makes war and defeats his foes. He gave a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And here God is being faithful to the promise as these are Abraham's descendants. 
and these enemies opposed them. And so the Lord, he defended them. He delivered the Jews and destroyed their enemies. And verse 4 talks about how the Jews, they had allies on account of Mordecai. And in verses 5 to 10, we read of a summary of the battles. Look at verse 5. It says, the Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. It's important for us to remember that through this war, the Jews were God's instrument of judgment upon these pagan nations. Similar to the conquest in the book of Joshua, how the Israelites put down all of those enemies. In this context, though, the Jews here are solely defending themselves. Now, to remember, Mordecai's edict countered Haman's. If you think about Haman's edict, as you see it in chapter 5, it was completely against the Jews to where they could destroy them, annihilate them, men, women, and children, and take their plunder. And so when Mordecai rose to power after Haman was hung, he wrote a counter-edict, and it was symmetrical in every way. The Jews were able to defend themselves solely and exclusively from their enemies. They were able to defend themselves and kill the men, the women, and the children, and to plunder their goods. But who did the Jews kill? Verse 6. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. In verse 12, it says they killed and destroyed 500 men. In verse 13, 15, it says they killed and destroyed 300 men. They spared the women and the children and only killed their men, the men who were their enemies. And part of those men were Haman's ten sons. And it's likely done, this, done to avoid some sort of vengeance. And the sons were hung just as their father. This war on the Jews' behalf, it was solely self-defense. This wasn't a shakedown. How do you know? Well, look at verse 10. The end of verse 10, after it says who they killed, it says, however, they did not seize any plunder. That phrase is mentioned two other times in verse 15 and verse 16. They did not seize any plunder. The author is emphasizing this. They didn't make profit off of their enemies' possessions. They only defended themselves. Here they were following the pattern of Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. After he rescued Lot from those kings, he did not plunder his enemies. They were following the example of the Israelites and the conquest in the book of Joshua where they did not plunder the enemies' goods. And they were doing the exact opposite of what King Saul did in 1 Samuel 15. God commanded Saul to go and kill the Amalekites for they were his enemies. And God told Saul to not plunder any of their goods. Saul killed most but not all. Saul also plundered the best goods that he saw. Saul disobeyed God. But here you have Mordecai, who is a descendant of Saul, and the Jews, what are they doing? They are righting Saul's wrongs. In verses 11 to 16, there's a conversation between King Ahasuerus and his wife, Queen Esther. In verse 12, it says, The king said to the queen in the fortress of Susa, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's ten sons. Then he gives a generous offer. He says, What have they done in the rest of the royal province? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. The queen makes a request. Verse 13, she asks for another day of fighting for the Jews and specifically in the city of Susa, and that they would hang Haman's ten sons. Esther may have perceived a prevailing view of anti-Semitism in the city of Susa, 
And what she wanted was to comprehensively eradicate all of the Jewish enemies. Well, in the providence of God, the request was granted. They fought for another day, and 300 men were destroyed. Verse 15 and 16, you can see that this victory was massive. Jews took no L's, all victories. They conquered their enemies. But how did they do it? It wasn't by their power. It was solely by the providence of God. Their victory was his work. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 4. The Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Joshua chapter 10, verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. Well, here in the book of Esther, God's name is absent, but his hand is very active. He is providentially at work accomplishing his purpose to preserve and protect his people. Now, one may wonder, Pastor, how does this apply to us in Christ Jesus? It's a great question. First, let me say that this is not a proof text for one to pursue Christian nationalism. Beloved, we don't conquer our enemies by physical force. We're not trying to take back our country in the name of God as if he lost control and is in need of our help to regain it. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for laws and policies to be just because we should and we do. But the application is not to pursue some sort of Christian nationalism. The reality is, beloved, America is not the light of the world. Jesus is. And his church is because we are followers of him. So what is our application? We have to remember that this is historical. This took place here. And we are in a different time in redemptive history. Now Christ has come. The true Israel. He has come to save, to redeem, to deliver. And the way he did it, it wasn't through fighting, but it was through suffering. He conquered his enemies of Satan, sin, and death, not by killing them, but by dying. It's important for us to remember that the very hatred that Mordecai and the Jews experienced in this book Jesus experienced similarly in his earthly ministry. And it was from Jewish religious leaders. Crucified at the hands of lawless men, both Jew and Gentile. In fact, Jesus tells his followers that as we follow him, we should expect the very same treatment. So how does this apply to us? Well, beloved, Jesus calls us to put down our clubs and pick up our crosses. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus suffered at the hands of lawless men, and so we who are his followers should expect the very same treatment. By the grace of God, we've trusted in him, we've identified with him, and so we will suffer like him. Well, I don't know what you know, but man, I began to grow in my love for reading after Jesus had saved me. The seminary just made me all the more an avid reader. Love reading and read all kinds of genres, theology, definitely, um, history. I love to read biographies, autobiographies, fiction, nonfiction. I just began, I just growing more in a, an appreciation of reading. And one of the things I love to do in reading and analyzing books is I'm trying to look for themes, patterns, repeated phrases, because these are clues that'll help you understand what the author is trying to convey. 
Follow along with me real quick. And so the Bible is one book, consists of 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And out of those 27 books in the New Testament, 19 to 20 books mentions or alludes to Christians suffering opposition on account of Jesus Christ. 19 to 20 out of 27. God is communicating to his church that if we are going to follow Jesus in this age, we will suffer. We will be hated. We will experience persecution. The reality is Christians are a persecuted people. Read church history. In every age, you're going to read of Christians suffering on account of Christ Jesus. That very same persecution still happens to this very day all around the world. It happened in our country recently. Think about the shooting in Nashville. That was at a Presbyterian church's school. That was a form of persecution. And the very thing that our persecutors want is for us to do one of two things. Denounce Christ or die. So how do we conquer? Well, it's not by war. It's by faith. We conquer by loving Jesus and trusting in him holding fast to the gospel to the very end, even if it cost us our lives. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says, they conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. We're to love Christ and cling to him, even in the severest of suffering. Whether it's persecution or some sort of suffering of illness, we cling and we trust Jesus. We have to remember that the cross precedes the crown, that suffering comes before glory. So if we're going to conquer opposition, the very opposition that the Jews feel in this passage, we're going to experience on account of Jesus, how will we conquer it? By abiding in Scripture and by remaining in community. Abiding in Scripture, we must remember all of God's promises, meditating on them, mauling over them, clinging to them, remembering that Jesus has already won the victory. We're not fighting for the victory, beloved. We are fighting from it. And it's this word that renews our minds that reminds us that God is for us even in our suffering. Matthew 5, blessed are you when those revile you or persecute you on account of Jesus' sake. Jesus concludes and says, rejoice for your name is written in heaven. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, nakedness, sword, you hear that, that list of seven? None of those things sound good. It says we're being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then Paul answers the question. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Beloved, our hope is heavenward the more we dwell in the word. It gives us strength by God's grace to endure to the very end. So we need to be in the Word. We also need to be in community. We need gospel-centered fellowship to help us endure to the very end. We need to bear each other's burdens and remind us that Christ is coming again. 
Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to be in community. The way we conquer is by utilizing the very means that God in his love and grace has provided us. And so, beloved, how are you doing in these two areas? Do you see them as essential to your perseverance as Scripture says that it is? Here in this passage, the Jews, they destroyed their enemies. We who are in Christ in this age, we will suffer at the hands of our enemies. But know that the destruction of the enemies will happen for us, just not in this age. The reality is, this life isn't all that there is. There is another one that is to come, and for all who are in Christ, it is a far better one. Because when Jesus Christ returns, he will destroy every single enemy, and he will take his bride, and we will be eternally safe, resting because of what Christ has done. We must know this and cling to this. Holding fast, and so we conquer our opposition by faith. We also commemorate our deliverance with joy. Look at verses 17 and 19. It says, They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. So the battle is over. The Jews won and they rested from their enemies as God protected and saved them. Well, the Jews in Susa, they got that same rest and excitement after the 14th day. It says they rested, and then they rejoiced, relieved from their enemies. They got rest from their enemies, and so it was time to celebrate. They pulled out the music and the Martinelli, and they began to turn up. But the question is, how did they celebrate? They took off their cool jackets. They, didn't, they weren't stoic. They also wasn't alone. They celebrated in community. Similar to what the psalmist says as he's exhorting some people, didn't want to worship God by himself. He says, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. They rejoiced together with feasting in response to deliverance that God has brought about. In verses 22 to 24, Mordecai commanded that they would remember this and celebrate annually. They were to rejoice in the victory that God has providentially brought about. Verses 24 and 25 gives the context. It says, For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against them, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the purr, that is, the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. Context is here. The Jews, they were hated and doomed. But God. But God providentially intervened on their behalf, flipping the script, turning the tables, and rescuing them from annihilation. And the way he did it wasn't through signs and wonders as you see in the book of Exodus. Well, here in the book of Esther, God used ordinary people 
accomplishes his purposes through ordinary decisions, both sinful and good, to accomplish his extraordinary purpose. The very God who worked in Exodus is the same God who worked in the book of Esther. And he is the same God who works on behalf of his people this very day. Beloved, I love the book of Esther. As I said in the very first sermon, I think it's one of the most relatable books in all the Old Testament because God's name is not there, but his hand is actively at work. And how often do we look at our situations and our seasons and wonder, God, where are you? Assuming that he's not working because things ain't working out in our favor. And yet the book of Esther reminds us that God's name may not be present, but his hand is very active. It reminds us that we can trust him in the midst of the difficulties, knowing that he has worked in the past and that he will work once again, and that he is working behind the scenes, and we can trust him, beloved. The question is, when was God favoring the Jews in the book of Esther? One will read it and think that he favored them when the edict changed, but no, he favored them the entire time. question for us is, when did God favor us? It was before the foundation of the world. So in the difficulty, the distress, the discouragement, we can remember that God is still at work and he's good, and how do we know? Well, at the cross of Jesus Christ, God met our greatest need. The resurrection secures our redemption. He has delivered us. And he has promised that he will one day deliver us. And so we can trust him in the here and the now. Here are the Jews. They experienced deliverance. And the response was celebration. Good times. Come on. Let me talk to the children. Kids, it is a good thing to celebrate. I know you guys love to celebrate. You celebrate your birthdays. You celebrate your achievements, whether it's a championship or making the honor roll. God actually wants us to be happy. He wants us to celebrate. But more than our achievements and what we can do, far more, God wants us to celebrate what he has done. And the greatest achievement that he has brought about, that he has worked, is through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and the victorious resurrection from the grave. Because for all who trust in him, we are saved. Your parents want you to celebrate these sweet things of birthdays, but your parents want you to celebrate even more what Jesus has won. Let them tell you more about him and the victory that is in him. Beloved, as I said, we are a celebratory people. We celebrate anniversaries, holidays, and the way we do it is communal. As I said before, celebrations are even sweeter when we remember the bad whether it's the wreck that we had that almost killed us, but by God's grace we're healthy, or the diagnoses that we've experienced and the, and the, the treatment that we had to endure to where now we are cured. The celebration is sweeter when it's coming out of pain. Think about a diamond, a real diamond, not rhinestones or cubic zirconium or whatever it's called. Like, think about a real diamond. Them mugs are beautiful, they shine bright, but when do they shine the brightest? When there is a black backdrop. And when are celebrations the sweetest? Well, we're coming out of the most difficult things when we remember all that God has delivered us. You cannot help but celebrate. And the reality is, God wants his people to be a celebratory people. Think about the Passover. When God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt through what? The slaughtering of a spotless lamb. 
They were brought out from slavery. Beloved, we don't celebrate Passover. We celebrate the fulfillment of Passover. Jesus Christ, his death. Think about it. We were enslaved to sin. And God, in his love and grace, sent his son. Jesus Christ, the scripture says that he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when he died, he took away the sins of all who would trust in him. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, remembering Jesus and his death on our behalf because he has delivered us from great things. Mordecai here, he commanded that they would celebrate Purim as the Jews were delivered from an unjust edict of genocide. And God providentially worked and delivered them and brought about a great reversal. Beloved, we don't celebrate Purim. We celebrate something even greater. We celebrate the greatest deliverance that God has worked in Christ. When sin entered the world, deserving the punishment of judgment, God spoke a very gracious promise that he would send a son, that a son would reverse the curse. And he did that through Jesus. As Christ came and died for our sins, God didn't eliminate his wrath. He exhausted it on Jesus Christ in our place. And Christ defeated his enemies of Satan, sin, and the grave. Three days later, resurrecting from the grave. And all who have trusted in him, beloved, we went from being doomed to being delivered. And how should we respond? With celebration. And we don't celebrate merely in isolation. We do it together as a covenant people that God has brought about. As we're commemorating his resurrection, we do it on Easter and we do it every Lord's Day. So if you know yourself to not be a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. I want you to know that God loves you and the gospel is that you can't save yourself. But God sent his son to die for sinners. On Good Friday, Jesus experienced great agony, great pain. And the pain that he, that he experienced, the very pain that we should experience. But not merely for three hours, but for all of eternity. And Christ bore it. And what he offers is forgiveness and life because he died. But he did not remain dead. He rose from the grave victoriously. And he offers forgiveness for all who would trust in him. And so, friends, I would implore you this very day, trust in Jesus Christ that you may be saved by his grace. Beloved, these Jews, they were celebrating the reversal that God has brought about. Verse 22, it says that that month was when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. Beloved, we have experienced the very same things in Christ. And we went from without hope to with hope. And though we're in this fallen world, we still have much sorrow. We cry real tears as we experience real pain. But what Christ has done the victory he has won, it meets us in our pain and it gives us real joy in the midst of it. That's why I would say, honestly, I believe Christians should be the most joyful people in, on the planet. Not because life is always good, but because we're the only ones who have an eternal hope. The only ones. What Christ has secured through his resurrection, it is amazing. It testifies to the reality that the way things are now are not how they will remain. Think about what Jesus has done. He has redeemed us. Our decaying bodies, we will one day experience redemption of the bodies. We cry now because of Jesus' resurrection, he will one day wipe every tear. The earth is cursed. Well, when Christ returns, he will one day renew it. 
Christians should be some of the most joyful people. And sadly, there are times to where Christians are some of the most doom and gloom. As if everything is bad and as if Jesus is still in the grave. I'm not talking about seasons of grief where the grief overshadows the joy. I'm talking about this persistent, ongoing joylessness. What causes it? Say one, forgetfulness. We have forgotten how good the gospel truly is. For others, it's belittling the significance of the gospel. When we begin to do that, we have an unbiblical perspective to where God is holy, but he ain't that holy. Sin is wrong, but it ain't that wrong. And where that is our perspective, Jesus' suffering and death won't be that glorious. And for others, it's a misplaced hope. It's a misplaced hope. The way it's not in eternal things, but it's only in this life. So our attention and our affections are here only. And the reality is, to be frank, when I'm in this kind of funk, it's all three. And beloved, if you're there, let me remind you that God loves you. That Christ bled for you. That he has saved you by his grace. Let me encourage you to be honest with God and to one another. And immerse yourselves in the scriptures. Reminding yourselves of the promises of God and the hope that is in him. If you survey the New Testament, the authors are repeatedly exhorting us to rejoice, not in our circumstances, but in what Christ has done. So may we do that. In verses 27 to 32, the Jews, they committed to celebrating. Until this very day, they still celebrate Purim. Because of its significance. How much more should we constantly commemorate the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection? The fact that he has saved us from sin's penalty, and one day he will save us from its presence. So we will reign with him in his coming kingdom. Love, we go through real situations, experiencing real pain, and the work of Christ really does meet us there, and it impacts our outlook. You know, um, start getting into music more. Really do love music. Like, really love music. And some of my favorite songs, um, man, if you know me, you probably heard this at my house. Some of my favorite songs are songs that are sung in the minor key. And why? Because a lot of life is lived in the minor key. Now, if you're familiar with music, you know, pianos and stuff like that, I'm just learning this, so I'm not a student of it, but um, songs in the major key are, are exciting. You know, they're played with the white keys on the keyboard. But songs in the minor key, they're the black keys on the keyboard, and as you play them, you begin to be somber, this sadness. A lot of life meets us there. We have real suffering, and so it's good to sing songs in the minor key to be real about the difficulties of life. But God, his gospel, his promises, these are major key themes. And what God has done for all who are in Christ is that he meets us in the low parts of life with these great major key themes he doesn't, call, he doesn't tell us to stop singing songs in the minor key. But what he does is it causes us to sing those songs in the minor key, but we sing it with hope. And then what happens is, because of God and his promises, our countenance begins to lift. Our heads begin to raise. Our affections begin to be stirred. So we go from singing songs in the minor key with hope to singing songs in the major key with joy. So we begin to sing, hallelujah, my hope springs eternal. 
Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. We begin to sing unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. God has worked in Christ in such a glorious way to where there's a great reversal has taken place, beloved. We have life. We have hope. We are saved by the grace of God. And one day we will reign with him in his eternal kingdom. It is what Christ has brought about through his suffering, his death and resurrection, and God choosing us by his grace and saving us by his grace. So we can rejoice in the deliverance and we can anticipate the future deliverance with great joy. In the last three verses, the king is still reigning. Things are back to normal. For the Jews, things are not the best, but they're way better than what it was. As they have Mordecai, who's second in command, who's an advocate and a defender of them. Things are normal, but they're not great because we have to remember a wicked king was still on the throne at that time. For us who are in Christ, Jesus has saved us. And yet we still live in this fallen world. Things are much better because Christ has saved us, but things are still difficult. Jesus himself says that in this life you will have trouble. And yet we can navigate that trouble with hope because of what Christ has done. He has changed everything. We are forever changed, and one day all of creation will be changed. The saints will celebrate Jesus' work throughout all of eternity. Beloved, I wonder if Cool and the gang had the new heavens and the new earth in mind when they wrote celebrate good times come on because for Christians when Jesus Christ returns we will celebrate good times for all of eternity and beloved we are one day closer to that being our permanent reality let's pray our father in heaven we do praise you for your grace in Christ, that you have delivered and redeemed us, that you have saved us and ransomed us by the blood of Jesus. Father, we pray that we be a people who rejoice in the Lord always because of your saving work in Christ Jesus, that we would long for his return knowing that our King will come soon. Give us grace, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.